There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Taoiseach has given a landmark apology to the victims and survivors of mother and baby homes. Each of you is blameless. Each of you did nothing wrong and has nothing to be ashamed of. Each of you deserved so much better. But is it enough as their fight to access their own personal files and information continues? We'll have reaction from one mother, Anne Harris, in just a few moments. And are hospitals reaching breaking point as calls to declare a national emergency mount and close contact healthcare staff are called back to the front line. On our first panel tonight, Minister of State at the Department of Children, Anne Rabbit, and Dr. Jack Lambert, consultant in infectious diseases at the Matter Hospital. And joining us via Skype, Dr. Gabrielle Colleran, Vice President of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. And Donald Trump has become the first US president ever to be impeached twice. We'll have the latest live from Washington. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightBMTV. Now, we'll be going in some detail to the mother and baby's report in the second part of the programme. We're going to be spending most of the time here talking about the latest in relation to COVID-19. But I do want very briefly to ask you, Anne Rabbit, as the junior minister in the Department of Children, we've heard a lot today and we will discuss it later. Apologies. But what people want to know is, will the apology today be acted upon in the way that perhaps previous apologies by the state in similar circumstances haven't been? I have no doubt it will, Matt, to be honest with you. What makes you that confident? Um, because I know that, the, first and foremost, there's two pieces to it. One is the information and tracing bill, and the other part is the burials. And I know from talking to Minister Gorman that he has actually spoke with the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Children and that the, the pre-alleged scrutiny is going to come straight before they won the burials. And um, in relation to the information and tracing, a lot of work has gone on there from where it stopped the last time. And um, people are saying, is it not going to happen quickly enough? There will be some engagement with, with the various parties that want to feed into that. Because listening to the way the Taoiseach spoke today, listening to the Taunashta, listening to the minister, there is a serious willingness on behalf of all members of government and cross the Oireachtas that want to see this progress and progress now. OK, we will talk about that in more detail later in the programme. We have other guests with us. But we do actually have a crisis at the moment in our hospitals with the increasing numbers of people with COVID-19. Did the government do everything to prepare the HSE for what's happening now? Um, Look, at they, they, they have done their very best to prepare. That We have invested a lot. So in when you look at where we were last um, last March, last February, um, we have ventilators, we have PPE. Um, we have, this evening when I was coming in, I hear that there's a deal being done with the, the private hospitals as well uh, and getting extra capacity. Um, 16 so is this beyond the 30% that was announced earlier in the week? No, no, that is... That is 
the 30 percent but they've also said as well that they're in a position to help with um, major emergencies um, be it um, the likes of cancer operations or whatever that needs to be done so like everything has been put in place to do it and like I hear that they're calling for it in our national emergency as far as I was concerned we're in level five we are in a national emergency and what we can do to support our nursing staff at the moment is to stay at home keep our distance well let's go to Dr Gabrielle Colleran on this from the Irish Hospital Consultants Association good evening to you Gabrielle uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation believe it's time to call a national emergency and also believes that all of the private hospitals should effectively be nationalised immediately. What's your position on that? I, I guess, Matt, firstly to say that it's really important that the voices of nurses and midwives are heard at the moment. And, you know, we work with nurses and midwives every day and like all healthcare workers, everybody is going above and beyond and, and really working in like an incredible situation. Um, the capacity that is being delivered in this new deal uh, between the HSE and the private hospitals is adding 600 much needed additional beds. And they won't just be helping with COVID-19 care, but also displaced essential, urgent, non-COVID-19 care, um, such as cancer operations, as Deputy Rabbit just alluded to. So it does seem that the agreement at this point has learned some lessons from things that worked well in the first wave, uh, those local agreements between hospitals working together to optimise the capacity. Um, but it is fair to say, Matt, that the challenges facing our public hospitals will continue beyond this uh, for a, a long period. And that although private public collaborations will play a part in addressing some of those challenges, the learnings from this would really point to investing in sustainable capacity in our public health system. And, and what we in Ireland, like many other health systems have seen, is that it really is essential that you have capacity to meet need. And so not to be corny about it, but coming out of this, we should be aiming to build back better and no longer accept the waiting list and insist that everybody who needs access to care gets it within six weeks. But Gabrielle, that's for the future. What about for the present? If we have a situation with mounting death tolls, 1,750 people today with COVID-19 in our hospitals, uh, heading towards 200 in ICUs, surely the investment should have been made from last March onwards, looking to the possibility that what's happening now could happen. You know, you know, Matt, you and I have had this conversation on this show multiple times over the past few years. And, and as you know, urgent implementation of the prospectus report has been something that the IHCA have pushed for since it was published in 2009. But in many ways, we can't have the post-match analysis now. What myself and my colleague are focused on is getting as many people through this as possible with the minimum excess deaths. And I would just like to emphasise, Matt, that you know, we're not going to win this in the EDs or the ICUs. We absolutely have to crush this curve in the community. And even if we crush the curve now, if we absolutely flatten it in the next week, patients who are admitted to ICU with COVID-19 tend to stay a long time, lot, a lot longer than many other reasons that people end up in ICU. So when we're at this point where our capacity is being so stretched already, we're facing a very difficult few weeks in our hospitals. And so it, it really is about trying to support our public hospitals to re really, we are the last line of defence. 
And anybody who has a heart attack or a stroke or a road traffic accident that needs an ICU bed, we want them to have it. It's really concerning for us that tonight, you know, in Dublin, for example, there are no available ICU beds in the Masher or, 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 or Vincent's uh, if, if somebody urgently needs one, not just for COVID reasons, but for non-COVID reasons. So our focus has to be on the community crushing this curve, the government doing everything in its power to ensure that people really do take this seriously, um, because we are now facing the biggest challenge our health service has ever faced. Okay, and let me go back to Jack Lambert on this, Gabrielle. Uh, Jack... I think many people, I don't know whether they remember the pictures of what happened in Italy last March and in the United States as hospitals couldn't cope with the overflow. Does that potentially face us here in Ireland? You know, I, I don't think so. I think, I think I do agree that we are much better prepared this wave than we were in the springtime. Um, and I think we did act quickly. Um, you know, it's not a matter of saying that we, we should st stay in lockdown and not let the virus grow, you know, in the community over the Christmas holidays. That happened. And it's a very infectious virus. And I think we're seeing the surge now from Christmas. And, and, and Sorry, as, as a specialist in infectious diseases, were you surprised at the speed at which this virus took off in Ireland, the virulence with which it did? Right. Well, actually, I, I think I was. I... I, I you know, and I think it kind of blindsided us that this new, you know, infectious, more infectious virus it has grown in Ireland under our noses without, and it's gone from 8% and now it's almost over 50%. So I, I think we're now dealing with an even more infectious virus. And I think that has contributed to the numbers increasing. But it is a different epidemic because it was centred in Dublin back in the springtime and it was most of those hospitals around that area that had to deal with it. Now it's every county, every hospital in the country. So I think over the next couple of weeks, we really need to buckle down and, 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 and do the but best we can in the hospitals. What does that involve, buckling down? In what way? Buckling down is, is really working hard in the hospitals, number one. And, 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 and learning from each other and, and taking care of the patients. Because I, I, think, I don't think we're going to continue to surge, surge, surge over the next couple of weeks if the community, and this is the second message, is if people respect the lockdown. And when I, in springtime, when I went to work, I was the only car on the road. Now when I go to work, even at 6.15 in the morning, there's cars all over the place. So people are not respecting the lockdown. People are still going to work for non-essential reasons. And I think the message has to be, we need to really, you know, do our best. All of us clinicians and doctors and nurses have to do our best in the hospital to deal with this. We've got much better resources now than we did in the spring. And the, and the HSC has done a, a much better job of testing equipment, supplies, you know, infrastructure. But... We're not, it's not going to be sustainable if we keep on seeing increasing numbers from increased community spread over the next two weeks. We keep talking about beds and PPE equipment and the rest of it for good reason. But is there a danger that we could end up with a shortfall in doctors and nurses because so many of them fall sick? Right. Well, that, that's, that's, always a that's always a possibility. But, but, but like I said, I think you know, we are doing better. In the springtime, so many, I think so many doctors, so many nurses, so many staff were getting infected because we weren't aware of just how infectious the virus was. We weren't wearing masks. And we are wearing masks now in every situation. So I, I do think healthcare workers are much more careful now. 
and much less likely to catch COVID than we were in the first wave. And what do you make of this about the people who are going to work, who Jack says may not be essential workers, that the, the roads seem way busier than they were last March and April in the first lockdown. I mean, what do you say to employers who are bringing people into work? Indeed, even to the public service, because we had the Force of Trade Union yesterday saying that many public servants have been forced to come into work. Well, it's a level five. So employers need to take that straight on board. I happen to agree completely with what you're saying, Dr. Jack. Um, the roads are a, an awful lot busier at this moment in time. You, and how I define it is when I travel up from Galway, when I came up uh, last April, I was first to every traffic light. Now I queue to get to a traffic light on, on a level five. Um, so the roads are busier. Employers need to really sit back and have a, a second look at how their operations are running, where they can, to please let their... Including the state, including uh, the civil service and public sector employers? Absolutely, Everyone, Matt, there's no exception in this. We all have a role to play. We all have personal responsibilities. Employers have roles to play. And where we can work from home, please let your staff work from home. Well, Gabrielle Colloran, what about the issue of childcare? Because I believe that that's a major one for many of the essential workers in our hospitals are struggling yet again to deal with the issue of childcare. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So I suppose, Matt, it's really quite a perfect storm um, because at the moment, because of the high levels of community transmission, many staff became symptomatic or became close contacts from family members and contacts over the Christmas. So we have staff who are unavailable for work because of that. And so we, and then you have people who are now becoming symptomatic who have to isolate as per the guidelines. And then childcare is a huge factor. 79% of our workforce is female. And unfortunately, you know, all the research would show worldwide that the burden of childcare is disproportionately placed on women. And so what I what I would call on uh, um, on the government is really to do more around supporting healthcare workers to be at work. So, for example, a colleague of mine who's an essential worker in Tyrone, she was contacted by her local school principal to say, you're on the list I've been given of essential workers. Your children are in school for three days next week to enable you to be at work. So the agility, the innovation, the local solutions that we've seen within healthcare, we need to see that approach around enabling healthcare workers, because at this point, when we're facing the worst part of the pandemic, we absolutely need all our team to be able to attend for work. And this is an additional press pressure, an additional stress, an additional cause of staff absenteeism at exactly the time we need all hands on deck. And Jack Lambert, what about the speed of rollout of vaccination for essential healthcare workers? What do you make of how the performance has gone to date? Well, 
I think I'm quite critical. Um, I, I, I think I, I read the document, the strategy document that came out in December. I took a look at it. I reviewed it. It's a huge challenge to roll out this COVID vaccine. But when the vaccine arrived on the 26th of December, you know, Portugal had 40,000 people vaccinated. We are now approaching vaccinating 40,000. And some hospitals have had got lots of vaccine. At the matter, we've had less than 50% of, of the vaccine we need. And, and Have a you lot been able of, to find out why that is? No, we don't. And the transparent, this transparency issue there is, 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 is a big concern to me. Uh, so, so there seemed to be equi equitable division of the vaccine to different areas. And for example, I have staff who are dealing with hospice COVID patients, COVID positive, who didn't get vaccinated. And I have medical students from UCD who are vaccinated in Mullingar and vaccinated in Holly Street Hospital. So it's so, sort of like... If you had to make a priority, would you vaccinate the, you know, the hospice nurses who are caring for COVID positive, you know, end of life care, or would you give it to UCD medical students? There have been, this, this has not been well planned and we really need to get this right moving forward. Gabrielle Colleran, do you share those concerns? So my experience of the vaccination program was the rollout that we had in Hollis Street last week, which was you know, a, a really wonderful experience as a, a staff member and, and as part of the team where, you know, all the eligible staff in our hospital were vaccinated. And a key thing for us was ensuring that no doses were wasted. So we also vaccinated some local GPs and also some colleagues from the dental hospital and from the eye and ear. Um, I do think it's very important that we ensure that the staff who were most at risk of contracting COVID, irrespective of who they are, whether they're a healthcare worker, a reporter or a consultant, those who were most at risk have to be prioritised. Um, but it, to be fair, it is to be expected that in the first week or two of the rollout of a programme that there will be hiccups. But those are the things that we have to prioritising and ensuring that there is equity of access for those who are most at risk. Thank you very much, Dr Gabrielle Colleran, for joining us and also Dr Jack Lambert. Now, Minister of State Anne Rabbit will be staying with us because after the break we'll be hearing from a mother and survivor of Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork and also what can be done now for redress and access to information. Earlier today, Taoiseach Michal Martin admitted that the state had failed the women and children of mother and baby homes. I apologise for the profound generational wrong visited upon Irish mothers and their children who ended up in a mother and baby home or a county home. Well, we're joined now from France by mother and survivor Anne Harris. Anne, thank you for joining us. And as somebody who gave birth to a baby at Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork, how did you feel today hearing those words from the Taoiseach? Well, I didn't actually hear the words, Matt, because um, I was trying to wade my way through the, the report and I missed the, the live broadcast. But I did read his statement afterwards. And, yeah, it was an apology. Um, but the apology, to me, can only be the start of a process. You know, you can't... It's not by making an apology that you can just wipe away everything that's happened. I think it's now up to everybody, all of us, the, the, the survivors groups and everybody involved to hold the government to account and ensure that all the promises made today are, are carried out. Yeah, what process do you want to make sure that those promises are indeed honoured? 
Well, I think the, the first and most important thing is consultation. Um, I think the consultation was sadly lacking in a lot of the process up to now. I mean, the debacle in last October when that big debate took place about the possible sealing of the archives is was was um, was a case in point. Um, very few people had been consulted on on that issue, and there was a lot of misunderstanding and um, anger, quite rightly, in my my opinion. And I wouldn't like the same thing to happen again. I mean, I think probably one of the most important things for the minister to do now is to start working on introducing adoption um, information, so information on birth records, tracing information. And, you know, there ha I know there have been attempts to bring in this legislation before and they've always failed. And I, quite honestly, maybe it's because I've been out of Ireland for a very long time, but I really do not understand why uh, Ireland cannot follow the lead of the UK in this matter. The UK has legislation since 1975, and that that's 45 years ago, and they've had plenty of time to look at what's working, what's not working, and to draw the conclusions. And you were one of the fortunate um, ones who was able to find your son, but how long did it take you and how difficult a process was it? Um, well, I started, I suppose I started officially when he was 18. I went to the Adoption Society and I said to them that if ever he wanted to find out who his mother was, I was available. And then when I heard that there was going to be an adoption contact register set up, I said to them, look, I'm going to put my name on the on the register. And they said, oh, well, we can't do anything until he's 25. And at that point, he was 24 and a half. So I thought, right, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I actually looked for him myself and I found him. Um, and then I went back to the Adoption Society because I wanted to do things correctly and not cause chaos in his family. And eventually they, they did. They didn't know that I had actually got all the information already myself. Um, and we took it from there. He responded very positively and, and we built up, we very slowly built up a relationship, um, exchanging letters and then, then we met. And it was, that was a wonderful moment. And I've, that was 25 years ago and we have a great relationship. But I'm very, very aware that I'm one of the lucky ones. And there are very, very many women who are not as lucky as me, women who have not found their children, children who have not found their mothers. And I think, um, hopefully, the fact that we are now discussing all these issues openly will encourage people to seek each other out. And hopefully, lots more people will have the good outcome that we had. Anne Harris, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you, Matt. And we're joined now by former Labour Party leader in Thonisha, Joan Burton, by Minister of State Anne Rabbit, who is still with us, and live via Skype by James Gallon, lecturer with the School of Law and Government at DCU. He's an expert in transitional justice. But Joan Burton, if I could start with you, what Anne there said about the people who are still left in a position of limbo, who haven't been able to find loved ones. This isn't an historical issue. This is still a very live and real one, isn't it, for very many people? Well... 
You know, around the world, people have worked out mechanisms to actually address this and to do it carefully and with consideration. In Northern Ireland, which we're often prone to criticise down here, they have had this right since 1975. And basically, when you turn 18, you can look to uh, make arrangements to see initially your birth certificate and then details about your family. Now, we are told, as I was told, after, you know, 20 years of trekking back and forward to St. Patrick's uh, Adoption Society, St. Patrick's Adoption Guild, which, by the way, neither it nor the Catholic Protection and Rescue Society were included in this commission. And that's unfinished business because we do, not want, we do want to know what all the organisations not coverage did. But the nun uh, who was dealing with me and, you know, who was a senior person in the organisation, she just said to me, look, you know, you've two arms, two legs, just uh, go away. I promised your mother that never on this side of the grave would I tell. Do you what do you that? say to that? And do you believe the nun when she told you that? Well, what could I do? She, she had all the information. I didn't have any access to any. But can I just say, if we don't address this issue, I know younger people uh, who are interested in searching, when they go to Thusla, they're basically told that if, for instance, uh, you're under 40, you're put on a very long list, which is years long. And if your mother is, for instance, likely to be under 60, that even lengthens. And I see, I see Sorry, the minister. Yeah, because we put very little resources into this. And we also come from the psychology of the organisations which ran this and from John Charles McQuaid himself. His, you know, that cleric still runs and still sets the tone of what adoption is about in Ireland and what tracing is about in Ireland, which is that you're not allowed to do it. So I have been an advocate for a long time of an information and tracing bill. Yeah, but when you were in government, why didn't you get it done during and the five I, years you were a member of government? What we did in government was we established the commission uh, and that is necessary, but we could not actually uh, bring forward. We brought forward a bill which actually had several serious flaws in it, but in fact they're all addressable. And in my view, that bill could be actually brought in tomorrow. And I think the collective wisdom mm. of all of the parties mm. at this time in the Doyle would address the defects provided, as Anne just said, the people involved, the people in the various organisations, they are actually uh, brought into the discussion and brought into the committee, as, as we've done in other changes, well, whether okay, that's let's get on in marriage this. equality or that's the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. OK, and a lot of this seems so obvious as to why has it not done before now? And it goes back to the question I asked you at the top of the programme. We hear all of these promises every time there's a major apology made and things will be different and yet it seems nothing actually does change. Yeah, and that's a very fair point, Matt, and like you can understand why there's a lot of scepticism around today's apology. Like, does the apology really mean anything? What will it be backed up with and what's going to happen here? And when I came into government, in, or came into Leinster House in 2016, and I remember talking to Joan and we had a conversation yeah. about it, and I actually foolishly thought, like, that makes perfectly logical sense. Why couldn't this happen? And when I started talking to people, which well, sure, that's going on for a long number of years, Angie, you know nothing about it. But I believe there is that collective now. I think the there is that collective um, across all parties and none to see it move. And I think it's a priority. It's not, I think, I know it's a priority for Minister Gorman.
OK, well, let's bring in Dr James Gallon. James, if the political will was there, how quickly could measures be introduced to have a real impact on people's lives? Uh, good evening. I think measures could be introduced uh, with the utmost urgency. Um, for instance, we could introduce a one-line amendment to the Civil Registration Act tomorrow that would oblige the General Registrar to provide birth certificate information uh, to the people on application uh, and to provide their relevant legal and policy information. Um, the Department of Children and Youth Affairs has had uh, multiple uh, options regarding uh, adoption information and tracing bill for some years. Uh, in November 2019, Adoption Rights Alliance uh, drafted uh, shadow legislation. Um, Claire McGettrick, Mabel Rourke, Mairead um, Enright and myself drafting that legislation um, that would provide for unconditional access to birth certificates uh, for people in adoption and in informal care arrangements uh, and statutory access to one's adoption file and statutory access to state records for survivors uh, and an enhanced tra tracing surface uh, and so on. I'm also uh, a signature to a, a 2019 legal opinion uh, that clarifies some of the uh, sort of long-winded and long-winding debate about what it is permissible to do uh, in terms of legislation uh, in this area. Um, the lead author of that legal opinion uh, is Dr. Connor uh, O'Mahony, uh, now the government's own special rapporteur uh, on the rights of children. And that opinion takes the view that the Irish Constitution and crucially the European Union's GDPR mm -hmm. allows the Oireachtas to legislate uh, for a similar system to that in Northern Ireland, whereby every adopted adult is entitled to their birth certificate following an information, information session. So uh, from a technical and from a legal perspective, lawyers are always going to disagree, um, but there there is a growing body of legal scholarship and uh, legal opinion that takes the view that there is no legal impediment uh, to providing people with their birth certificate uh, and with their adoption file. So, um, then, so James, it, it, why do you think then it's taken us long? Has there been a bureaucratic reluctance or has there been something deeper within the institutions of the state to try and deny people their rights to, even if this investigation was ongoing, to try and stop people discovering many of the wrongs that have been done? Yeah, I've been studying this issue for a number of years and it always puzzled me why uh, we weren't capable of pursuing best practice. And the conclusion I've come to um, is that it's about power. The institutions that operated historically uh, sought to dominate uh, society and to dominate the lives of people who were, were in them. And unfortunately, the way in which we've responded to the past uh, in the last 20 years uh, is about keeping power out of the hands of survivors and keeping it uh, in the hands uh, of those uh, who currently hold it in the status quo. We have an appalling record uh, in the last 20 years of how we've addressed the past. Uh, Roderick O'Gorman today spoke about the fact that trust is broken between survivors uh, and the organs of state, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that. We've been criticized routinely at the United Nations for a failure to respect human rights and to follow best practices in how we investigate, in how we hold institutions and individuals accountable, uh, and how we provide redress and reparations. Okay. Um, so we need to do much, much better. Okay. I know you're just a junior minister, so it's not your decision, Anne Rabbit, but I mean, how much pressure do you think can be put on the government to do these, what it seems like, quite simple things as quickly as possible? Well, as I say again, Minister O'Gorman has said it is his priority in 2021. There's two pieces of legislation. I discussed the burials earlier on. 
this in relation to the information and tracing ones, it is his priority. And going back to what Anne has said there, there wants to be consultation. So while um, it'll take a little while, but it is his priority in 2021, we do want to bring in p different groups. We do want to hear their opinion on it. Well, because, can I just say, I yeah. think in the last day, uh, not only have we had the, uh, the the apology by Antishak on behalf of everybody involved in politics, in the sense that I didn't hear anybody in the Doyle today disagree with it, but we have also had a major statement yesterday uh, from the Archbishop of All-Ireland, uh, Dr. Eamon Martin, and also from Dr. Dermot Martin of the Dublin Diocese, the, most, the two most senior clerics in the Catholic Church, who, uh, which was the institution which set its face and all of those in the civil service who adhered, you know, to the to to the morality of the Catholic Church against giving adopted people. It, you know, I, I went in and spoke to civil servants quite recently, I can tell the minister, uh, in the last couple of years. And myself and another woman who's an, adopt, an adoptee and is a lawyer. And they actually said, very nice people who work on the social, so, the social work side. And they said, but we have to protect the privacy of our mothers. And myself and this other woman, you know, it took a little minute for the penny to drop. Our mothers, the mothers, they, the, the mothers belong to the Department of Children and not to the people whose birth mothers they were. I mean, I thought it was an astonishing uh, psychological revelation. Joan, you also mentioned the apologies from the Catholic Church and many of I the religious institutions. Yeah, but okay, that's words. What about following it up with actions? Because Absolutely. We have seen in the past in relation to things like the Magdalene Laundry, industrial schools, other atrocities in this country, apologies. But then yeah. when it comes to actually reparations and the rest of it, very little done. Absolutely. And that is going to be a very major test mm. of this government. I remember in the 2004 Doyle, after the deal had been done between the then Taoiseach Bertie Hearn with Dr. Michael Woods, who was the Minister for Education, I think then, I remember I went into the figures because obviously for obvious reasons I have a lifelong interest in this. And I, was, I think I was the first person in the Doyle who said, and I was naive at the time, I think this is going to cost the state about half a billion by the time all mm. of the commitments are met. And you looked at what the religious orders had offered, which was a fraction, a fraction of that. Now, I do think, you know, the old confessional used to say you could make a confession, apologise for the sin, but then you had to show a firm purpose of amendment. The firm purpose of amendment in this case that the is that the government must use all its skills to ensure that proper redress is forthcoming from the people who are responsible directly for a lot of the harm done to people. I'm not saying for all, the, all responsibility, but for a lot of it. But James Gallen, if we're critical of the Catholic Church and also various religious institutions, what about the state's performance as well when it comes to redress for those who've been affected in the past? Would that give you any confidence that things will be done better this time? ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com No, absolutely not. Um, the state's record on redress and reparations um, is universally uh, um, in need of reform. The Residential Institution Redress Board scheme, you might remember from a documentary on RTE last year, survivors disclosed that it was a re-traumatizing experience for them. You may remember the experience of Cara Nua, the former CEO there, just saying survivors are, will never be happy. Uh, the Magdalene Laundry scheme needed to be judicially reviewed and was subject to complaints to the ombudsperson and the O'Keefe uh, scheme for uh, abuse in primary day schools. The original uh, government approach to that rejected every single application to the scheme. So the government's uh, and the state's approach to, to redress uh, is uh, uh, far out of line with international best practice. And the key thing I think to remember in uh, the whole space that we're, we're addressing here is that the process matters as much as the outcome. The way in which survivors are treated day by day by individual civil servants and by individual representatives of church and states matters as much as grand words that are given uh, in an apology uh, or, the, or the broad conclusions reached uh, by a commission report. And Robert, you say the political will is there, but do you believe that it will be shared by all civil servants, given the record that some of them might have had in the past in dealing with controversial issues like this, particularly things that they felt might affect the Catholic Church? Well, I think that's where we need to change the law, Matt, because at the moment when we talk about TUSLA, they, they, can, they can stand behind the law. We need, to, we need to actually change law. That's the first thing. But it's an important point that that gentleman is just after bringing up there, because one of the things that has been put in place is a liaison officer. So if you have to deal with the county council, because some of the people mightn't be able to have the whereabouts or the confidence in themselves to go in and talk about housing or adaptations or anything else like that. The same with medical cards. So we're going to put people in place to actually be a support liaison with the various institutions that have hurt them in the past. Very briefly, last word, John. I, I, I work on a voluntary basis with the Christian Buckley Centre and the people who come to us, Matt, the, these people are getting older. A lot of them mm. are very poor and not well off. Can I say to the minister, mm. highest on the list of all is housing and in yes. particular, these people and people like myself, we do not want to end the, the rest of our days and the last of our days in another institution. Yes. We want housing and people want and need housing. I'm fine, but lots of people need okay. housing. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Joan Burton from Wimbledon, and also Minister of State Anne Rabbit and James Gallen. If you have been affected by the issues raised in our discussion tonight, you can contact the HSE's National and Consul Service on this helpline number, 1800 817 517. Okay, we leave it there. Lots more after the break. With only days left in office, Donald Trump has now become the first ever US president to be impeached twice. We'll be hearing live from Washington, D.C.
Welcome back. We're having a few technical issues with Washington, but we are jo joined in studio by Lorcan Nine from the Communications Clinic, who also writes on American politics for the Sunday Independent. And Lorcan, the first thing explained to us, because I think a lot of people are a bit confused. Donald Trump is leaving office next week. Joe Biden takes over on the 20th of January. So what's the point of impeachment proceedings? Precedent is, is the answer, so that even if you're not going to impeach him, you're not going to get the Senate trial in time, and they won't get a Senate trial in time because Mitch McConnell today has said that he's not going to let that happen um, before they come back on the 19th. But the argument from the Democrats, and I think a fair one, would be that they need to set a precedent so that if, if a president does this, he can't just because there is a small amount of time left, just because he did this 14 days and there's only there's only seven left, that he still needs to have a repercussion for inciting violence in the way that he did. There's also obviously a political consideration for the Democrats in still running ahead with it. Number one, I don't think they were able to not run with it. I don't think their base, their supporters would have accepted anything other than driving forward with impeachment proceedings, which have done successfully in the House. But also, they've sensed an opportunity, I feel, to say, right, we're going to be able to get some Republicans onto our side, which they have. Ten people voted for impeachment um, this evening. In ten, the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives. Um, but also, the Republicans who won't go against Trump, they have sensed an opportunity. They'll still get him to criticise him. So if the, Demo the Democratic political objective is to remove Trump from the playing field, well, then having Republicans, even if they're not voting for impeachment, coming out and saying Trump was responsible is a good outcome. So they had to do it. They were forced into doing it. But politically, it's also the right move and morally. But, but what about the potential for making a martyr out of Trump that he still enjoys significant support amongst Republicans? 72 million people did vote for him in the presidential election, that he will use an impeachment as a way to claim that he has been maltreated and make him a martyr. Absolutely. He's going to try to make himself a martyr anyway. Maybe this gives him a, another tool, another way of doing it, a slight one. But he's going to do that for his base anyway. He is going to try to say he was victimised. The first impeachment for him is enough evidence. So if you're, if you're trying to heal, if you're trying to bring divides back together, you have to win first. And you have to make sure that you've actually defeated the enemy before you start saying, right, can we reach out to his supporters? If you leave Trump off now when he's at his lowest ebb, He's consistently lost the same election again and again because of his legal battles. He's now being impeached again. He's also annoyed some of his own base by coming out and saying, you were wrong to, to riot in the way that you did. He has alienated moderates. He's at a very, very low ebb and he's at its lowest ever support with the Republican Party. But could you that have to make finish him, him more off. dangerous? Because when he's backed into a corner, he has a tendency to fight. He does. Now, the removal of his uh, bully pulpit from Twitter has been useful in that way because that affects a politician like Trump much more than it affects anybody else. It's another reason why he's at a low ebb. Trump is not strategic in how he thinks about things. He is not a Mitch McConnell who can hit his objectives without huge publicity. And there's only so many times he can call into Fox to rile up his base. Twitter was his amplifier. You look tonight, 10 Republicans have voted for impeachment in the House against him. Kevin McCarthy, who's the leader of the, of the Republicans, who's a Trump loyalist, has spoken out against him, even if not voting. And you don't hear anything from Trump because he won't put himself in front. He won't use the pulpit of being president to do interviews. He just likes to tweet. So 
the danger of him priming Republicans, etc., is lessened. He's a, he's a lesser threat now. And if you continue with impeachment, and if you're successful with impeachment in the Senate, and you go another step, you can stop him running again. He may not have Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and other social media platforms, but if he was to go in and give a press conference in the White House, surely it would be broadcast by all the networks, even if he was inciting people to continue a protest against Biden becoming inaugurated to try and encourage people to take up arms on his behalf. It would, of course, be, you'd see, he hasn't done a huge amount of press conferences since his coronavirus press conferences initially, because I don't think it's, it's something that he now... He's not as effective in that press conference form. He could absolutely still do it in the, in the next number of days that he has. But when he's yeah, finished... Yeah, sorry, he has formed during his presidency for doing things. Like after Charlottesville, he gave a highly controversial press conference that lasted way more than an hour. He has a tendency to do things which completely outrage people, which all the experts say, oh, he couldn't possibly do that, and then he does it. Absolutely. And it's, if you read any of the books of the, you know, the Inside the Trump White House books, one of the really, really constant threads through it is that Trump thinks he can fix anything by by doing a press conference or going on TV and they have to talk him down. He thinks, look, just give me a camera and I'll talk about it. And then he invariably ended up making a lot of those issues worse. So it is his instinct, but he's not that effective. He thinks he is, but he's not. He was very effective at Twitter because it drove the news agenda. He didn't have to take questions nor to be seen to not take questions. So he's lesser because of that as well. Okay, as it happens now, we are able to go to Washington to Nadia Romero of CNN. Nadia, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Tell us what is actually happening on the Capitol tonight when it comes to these impeachment proceedings. Well, we just watched, Matt, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly vote uh, to impeach the President of the United States. Donald J. Trump now having the dubious distinction of being the only president ever impeached twice, happening again today. 232 House members voting to impeach the President, and that includes 10 House Republicans. Now, if you remember back to his last impeachment back in 2019, no GOP members joined uh, the Democrats to impeach the President, and it was something that the, the president of the United States was very proud of, that he boasted about saying that this was a partisan move by Democrats. This time around, though, he can't say the same thing. House Republicans voting to impeach the president, including the third highest ranking Republican, uh, Representative Congresswoman Liz Cheney. She is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, a staunch conservative who was uh, a very vocal Trump supporter, saying that she had to vote in con her good conscience, and that was to vote for the impeachment of President Trump. Now it moves to the Senate, and we heard from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican, who says that uh, he will take up the impeachment trial on January 19th. That is the day before Vice President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. Now, Democrats were hoping that he would do this much sooner, uh, acting immediately, but he says he will take it up on January 19th, meaning uh, that this impeachment trial will last through the first at least couple of weeks of Joe Biden's presidency. Matt? Is there any expectation that Republicans in the Senate would vote in favor of Trump's impeachment? Yeah, it is a much uh, tougher case for Senate Republicans who have been um, really strong in their support 
of the president uh, for the last four years. But there could be some changes this time around. Many House Speaker, House members and Senate uh, members have spoken about why they believe that the president uh, plays some responsibility for that siege we saw on our U.S. Capitol, that domestic terrorism attack that happened just one week ago. And so when you look at uh, the Senate Republicans and you try to go through that list of who may vote to impeach the president, there's still a big question mark on Mitch McConnell. The senator from Kentucky, the majority leader who was always right in line with the president up until the siege of the Capitol and, and really even maybe before that um, when he wanted all the Republicans to come together and say that Joe Biden won the election to stop with the lies and, and spreading the misinformation that there had been some fraud in this past election and to support a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, because that did not happen, we've had many reports that Mitch McConnell says that he is done with the president. So if the Senate Majority Leader then tells other senators, his Republican conference, to vote for the impeachment, you could see some movement. Okay, uh, we Nadia, also have to keep sorry, our eye on briefly, Utah Senator Nadia, Mitt Romney. He voted to impeach the president. Very, very briefly, how fearful are people of further security breaches and violence before the inauguration next week? Yeah, Matt, it's something that's on everyone's minds. We have 20,000 National Guard troops that will be here in D.C. Uh, during the inauguration. That's more than U.S. troops than we have in Afghanistan right now. Uh, D.C. really looks like they're preparing for a war zone. Everything is barricaded. There are security checkpoints with National Guard soldiers, uh, different law enforcement officers asking you who you are. You have to show credentials to get past uh, a perimeter. You go a little bit further, and there's another security checkpoint. This is even unlike what we saw during the election. So uh, security is heightened to a level that we've really never seen here okay. in D.C. And people are concerned about what may happen. Nadia Romero of CNN, thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. That is all we have time for. My thanks as well to Lorcan Nyan for joining us. Coming up right after the break, A Secret Buried, The Mother and Baby Scandal, a documentary examining what happened in Chew Mother and Baby Home. I'll be back on radio tomorrow, back here tomorrow night at the same time of 10 o'clock. Thank you very much for watching. Stay home, stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.